We're doing the series, uh, A New Year Renewed You, and last week, can anyone remember what we talked about? No. It was over in the office because it was like 42 degrees. Talked about having a new purpose in life. And our new purpose in life, the, the purpose that Jesus says we should live for is to do two things. What was it? What were they? Yeah, I see that hand. Love God and love your neighbor. It's not rocket science, right? Like, actually, Christianity is really very simple. We make it something complicated, but it's really simple. Jesus says, if you want to know what your purpose in life is, it's not about you. It's about loving God and loving others. And that we are a means to an end. We're not an end in themselves in itself. We are here to serve others. So that's, you get all that out there. That's all simple. Now, the big challenge then is, how do you actually do that? How do you do that? Because have you ever discovered this? Have you ever set out to do something and you you make a resolution and you go, okay, now I'm going to do, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z. And you go, I'm going to, I don't know what it'll be. I'm going to... uh, Stop eating sugar. Yes, I'm going to give up eating sugar. You go, because it's a poison and it'll kill me. So I'm going to not eat sugar. And you resolve firmly to do this thing. And that goes well until, like, you know, you see some chocolate. And then you're like, oh, well, I'll just eat some sugar. Or uh, you go, you know what? I'm going to, uh, I'm uh, going to pray every day. So that's it. I'm going to pray as a, as a church. And I was like, I've got to pray every day. So I'm going to pray every day. And you that's awesome. Monday comes, you wake up in the morning and you pray. And it's like, yes, that's good. That's what I want to do. And I'm doing what I want to do. But by Friday, you know, the only time you're praying is when you're, you know, using the name of Jesus to curse at people who cut you off in the traffic, for example. You know, um, so have you ever had that where you're like, I want to do this, I'm going to do it. And then you find that you can't do it. There's a problem. There's a problem with our ability to do what we want to do and to not do what we don't want to do. Because what we often find is we do what we don't want to do and we don't do what we do want to do. Do you get that? Now, it's not, this is not a particularly unique insight, right? So this was, um, this was an insight that the, the New Testament writers had about human nature. Uh, famously, if you want to look it up, the Apostle Paul talks about this dilemma in Romans chapter 7, describing the situation of people, uh, Israel, under the law. Now, uh, the, the answer to this problem, the answer to the problem of why we don't do what we want to do and we do what we don't want to do, we find in this, in this highly confrontational discussion Jesus has with the Pharisees um, and the teachers of the law. The religious lawyers come to him, and what Jesus says to them essentially is, look, the real problem that you have is not all the stuff on the surface of your life. The real problem that you have is what? Why is that locked? Just the real problem that you have is that your product has stopped working. Here we go. Where's the problem? 
Problem is not just that you fail with the external things that you do. So the real, the, the Pharisees and the religious rulers and Jesus' contemporaries and Paul's contemporaries were obsessed with the view that, uh, that you lived from the outside in, that what really matters was what you did out with your hands and your mouth. And they had a whole selection of rules to uh, prescribe what you could do and what you couldn't do. And they got into all kinds of trouble by focusing on the exterior and what they did. And Jesus said, no, listen, if you dig deeper, you know what the real problem is? The real problem is your heart. Because the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, uh, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. So... Why do you do the things that you don't want to do? It's because you've got a problem with your heart. Why is it that you don't do the things that you should do? Love people, love God. Well, it's because you've got a problem with your heart. Simple enough. And because you're all good and compliant, and many of you have been in church a long time, you'll go, oh yes, mm, the heart, yeah, that's important. But hang on a moment, listen. Do you really, if someone said to you, and maybe we'll do that now, if I said to you, what is your heart? What, what actually is your heart in, in the, the way Jesus used it? Um, what would you say? What is, what is your heart? It's clearly not just the you know, organ that's beating away going... Is it? It's more than that. Anyone want to venture an idea of what is... Could someone describe what the biblical notion of the heart is? Desires and wants. Yes, close. Come back next week. The close. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good first stab. Closely connected desires and wants. Yeah, Helen. It's certainly where your actions spring from. Uh, it's not entirely the same as your thoughts again come back next week the two yeah thoughts and feelings work together come back next week when sam's going to be preaching isn't that exciting just thought i'd throw that in come back uh okay so to help you understand because this is vitally important if jesus says the thing that mucks up our lives is our heart if we're not clear what it is that strikes me as a bit of a problem right so let's get clear. To get clear what the heart is, I'm going to have, we're going to have to think a little bit hard about what the various parts of the whole human system are. So bear with me. This may sound a bit like a philosophy lecture, but then you're used to that at church, so that's okay. So to understand what the heart is, you've got to understand what is it that constitutes a human self, a human person. So what are the bits that constitute a human person? Well, we, we had this before. We had uh, thoughts and feelings... And uh, for the purposes of this analysis, uh, they go together to form the mind. Um, by the way, this analysis comes from my favorite philosopher, uh, Dallas Willard, and uh, shaped by his, um, his uh, philosophical approach of phenomenology, uh, the study of things as they are in their parts in relation to other parts forming whole systems. So just that's a bit of an intellectual footnote. So I give credit where credit's due. The mind. What else makes us up as people? 
A soul. Who said that? That's good. Yeah, that's complicated. We might, we might struggle to get our heads right around that, but we'll try. Okay, what else? Flesh. What do you, yeah, flesh. Body. Yeah, flesh, body. Let's call it a body, shall we? Because if it's not just flesh, it's connective tissue and organs and skeleton. The body. What else do we have that constitutes us as, as persons? The heart. Dope. There's one other dimension, one other profound component of, of who we are. Ah, spirit. Spirit actually is part of this reality that the Bible calls the heart. We'll get to that in a moment. The other dimension is uh, Relationships or our social context. And it's very interesting, I find, in, our, in the Western world, when I do this and I teach this stuff, we don't tend to think of that. But actually, biblically and philosophically in many non-Western, non-individualistic cultures, it's really obvious that who I am is really very much about who you are and who we are together. So to the, the parts of the human system, and this is all we are, right? Uh, and uh, the parts of this system have to be related rightly to each other if they're going to be a functioning, coherent whole. So we are minds, we're bodies, we're souls, we're hearts or spirits, and we're in a social context in a bunch of relationships. Now, it's important that they all work together uh, because, for example, if you take any system, um, take a bicycle... Uh, you've got a whole bunch of systems. You've got wheels and handlebars and a chain and gears and all of those things. Those all need to be rightly ordered and put together for the whole bicycle to work, don't they? Like if you try and put the chain where the handlebars are meant to go, it's not going to work, is it? If you put the wheel where the, the saddle's meant to go, it's not going to work. So everything has to be in its right place. And I want to suggest that according to Jesus... The reason we struggle so much in life to do what we really want to do, to do what's good, to love God and love other people, and then to avoid what's evil is because the various systems and parts of our lives are fundamentally disordered and we have a problem. Okay, so you might say at this point, Mark, tell me how my life should be ordered. Say, yes, that's a good, that's the right question, right? So, uh, biblically, here's, here's how we need to, here's how the world should work. Our heart uh, is also biblically the spirit or our will. And what that means is the heart, the, the heart is like the, um, the CEO or the decision maker, decision making part of uh, your being. So when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about that bit of us, that part of us that is, that, that is responsible for making decisions. And making decisions is at the absolute core of who you and I are, right? So what makes you uniquely you is the capacity you have to make choices and the choices that only you can make. Okay, so a heart is the essence of you 
Um, the heart also is a spiritual reality. Um, so I just, this is really, really important, and it, I'm going to do my best to explain it clearly um, because it opens, it makes so much sense of our relationship with God. You see, uh, the, the heart, the essence of who I am, is not, it, it's not a, a material reality. It indwells my body. So one philosopher has said, we are spiritual beings having a physical experience, right? Uh, our hearts, our will, our spirit is a spiritual, non-material reality that indwells and uses our bodies, but is not the same as our bodies. Um, so for example, if you wanted to discover the heart of Mark, where would you look? Where would you look to find the heart of Mark? Well, the worst place to look would be to actually cut me open and try and find it because you'd sort of kill it. The, the, the heart of me is carried around and located and proximate to this body, but it isn't the body. And if you've ever seen a dead person, you'll know this. When my father died, uh, I was there. Uh, not at the moment he died. I was there just before he died. I went out of the room, and I came back, and he, dead. he was dead. Now, let me tell you, there's a massive difference between a physical body that has the essence of the person still in them, and then when the essence of the person is gone, it's just different, right? Something has gone. Now, we live in a world that really struggles to understand that the material isn't all there is. We live in a world that tries to tell us all the time, this world is what's really real, what we can see, taste, touch, feel, and smell. But actually, a moment's reflection says, as I said, I think, at Christmas, that in truth, the most important and interesting thing, part, things and parts of life aren't material, aren't physical. Our, our, our spirits, our hearts, love, ideas, these are spiritual realities. Now, what does that mean? As a spiritual reality, God is profoundly interested in your heart, in, in what you choose, in your will. He's not, in the first instance, particularly interested with your outsides. He's massively interested in this spiritual dimension of your being. So, uh, for example, this is what um, the importance of the heart in the Bible is highlighted this, right? Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So this spiritual reality defines you. Your, your ability to choose, this makes you who you are. Whatever you do in life is going to come from your heart. Uh, negatively, what that means, if you say, oh, well, I'm not really a liar, I just occasionally tell lies. No, 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 no. You tell lies because you have the heart of a liar. You are a liar. Huh. You, you, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really lust. I just occasionally fall into, you know, hours and hours of compulsively looking at pornography. No, 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 listen. You... You do that because in your heart of hearts, you have a heart of lust, right? It's not, a, it's not a mistake. It's not like, I've got this great inside, but just occasionally on the outside, I stuff up. No, no. What this spiritual reality that is the essence of us chooses, this is actually what shapes everything, and everything flows from this. As water reflects the face, so one's life reflects your heart. It's massively important, and it's what God is massively interested in. So in John, 
Uh, in John, Jesus is talking about who's, who God is going to connect with. And he says this, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So what the heck does that mean? You get all kinds of you know, descriptions about that, and some people do a, try and I don't know, make sense of it. It's, it's not really obvious until you say what God is after is people who will worship with that spiritual dimension of their beings, that core of who they are. That is, God really wants people who will give Him their hearts. That's what it means. From the inside out, they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Uh, God is spirit, so this is really interesting. God is spirit, and, and His worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So because God is a spiritual being, and our, soul, our, our hearts are spiritual entities, that's how God and us connect in the first instance. And God is really interested in this. So the Lord said to Samuel, they're going out choosing the king for Israel, uh, looking around, and God says, which I think is tremendously good news, uh, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. Uh, people look at the outward appearance, but what? The Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at that non-material spiritual essence of you. Hey, and isn't that amazing? Because that means uh, what really matters to God has got nothing to do with how young or skinny or gorgeous or intelligent or white or black or cool or outwardly successful. Nothing at all to do with that. Let's push that even further, right? You may be a profoundly intellectually handicapped person, but you've still got a, a heart, that is every bit as much a functioning spiritual reality as your heart or my heart. So profoundly intellectually handicapped people can be deeply, massively, intimately connected with God with as much value as you or I could have. Isn't that beautiful? And, and babies and children and people with Alzheimer's. And, and I, I say, as I get older, I find this particularly encouraging as my... Um, outward appearance gets less and less impressive. Not that it was ever that impressive to start with. But let me tell you, basically, folk, your outward appearance will peak somewhere between 16 and 22, right? Mate, that's it. Honest to goodness, if you're really lucky, you, can, you might be able to push that out to 25, 26. After that, it is all downhill in terms of your outward appearance. So you're basically, for a lot of you, you're as good looking as you're ever going to get, um, to be honest. And that's, so this is wonderfully good news because this outward body that we carry around fades and fails, but God is still connected to the essence of us. So how do we order the, our lives if this is what our heart is? Uh, what, the way God wants our lives to be ordered is he says, okay, I'm, God says, I want, to, I want you to love me first and foremost. Another way of putting that is God says, I want to be the one who directs your life. So God interacts directly with us, and God's will is, is revealed to us to say, our hearts need to yield to his will. And then what happens is our hearts, our capacity to choose, we then choose uh, what we are going to think about. Our heart directs our minds. So based on what God wants, we will what God wills, and based on what God wants, we choose what we're going to think about. And guess what? We choose what we're going to feel. 
And then on the basis of that, submitting to God's will, we, we make a whole bunch of, we choose to live under God's will, and then we uh, choose what we're going to think about, and then our mind directs our bodies, and our bodies then are given completely um, to the love of the other. That's how it's meant to work. Uh, that I submit my heart to the will of God and the heart of God. And then at the essence of me, my heart directs my mind, which directs my body. And then as Paul says, which is a phrase I absolutely love from Romans, that my body becomes an instrument of righteousness. Isn't that a, I don't know, that's like my, it's Romans 6. It's a, just a cool phrase. That this body you have now becomes an instrument of righteousness. Sounds good, doesn't it? That's typically not how we live in this world. What tends to happen in the world is this. You know what? We don't, we don't like God telling us what to do. <laughs> do we? That's the problem, right? No, I don't want to do what you want me to do, God. We are the spiritual equivalent of every two-year-old who's ever chucked a tantrum at their parents. We go, no, I want to make my choices. So, uh, so our hearts rebel. Our hearts become hard. They say, no, I want to do what I want to do. But the problem with the heart, if you reject God and you say, no, 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 I don't want God directing my spirit or my will or my choosing, the question then is, what else is going to direct or inform your choices? Does that make sense? If it's not God, it's got to be something else. So what is that something else going to be? So if here's your heart, and let me ask you another, put it another way, this might help you clarify this. What is the basis, what are the functional authorities or the functional rulers or the basis upon which most people make most of their decisions in life? What actually rules most people's lives? Selfishness? Other people's opinions? Goes back. So desires, we're ruled by. We're ruled by our desires. Sam mentioned that right to start, which is another way of saying actually our bodies tend to rule us, right? How we meet the needs of our bodies. What we're left with is sensuality. Uh, I mean, all the classic philosophers would agree on this. In fact, Paul says in Philippians, um, when he says that God is their stomach, that's what he means. We're left with sensuality, with with deriving the maximum possible benefit for our bodies. So our bodies now start to guide us, and our bodies then drive, um, uh, just to, to tell us what we should uh, think about. So we spend an awful lot of time focused on thinking about ourselves. What will make me happy? What will bring me the best good? What will secure the greatest amount of money that will secure the greatest physical security for my body? And then uh, the, the body and the mind direct the heart to make a bunch of choices that are, des- are driven by our bodies. And what happens then is we start to use people. We use people and we use God to meet these needs. That's what tends to happen, almost inevitably, right? 
there's a problem with this as well. And the problem is this. Um, if, our, if our heart, if our lives are being driven by what other people say, by our desires, by our bodies, by sensuality, we get what, what the philosophers in the Bible talks about. We get a divided heart because we don't know what will really make us happy, do we? I mean, today, let me tell you what's making my body happy. It is a paleo diet keeping me in a state of ketogenesis. I just want to put that out there. I'm telling you, this is better than therapy for me, okay? That's what's my body. Those are the choices that I'm making right now. But let me tell you, when I get home tonight, in about two hours, my body's going to be telling me I need two things to make me happy. Wine and chocolate. Now, what am I going to do? I'm divided. I'm tossed around. And, and I'm also, I'm kind of conflicted because I want to love you. But actually, there's a whole bunch of my body telling me, no, I've got to look after myself. So why don't I do the things that I want to do? It's because my life is fundamentally disordered when I'm living in this way on the green. When I'm, I'm being controlled and directed by all kinds of other voices. So, the answer, according to Jesus, is you have to get your heart changed so that your heart is fully submitted to God. Uh, your heart, this is the way that everything works well. And until that happens, you're going to have a divided heart, an opaque heart. One of the problems is you don't even know why you do what you do. When you're living like this, who knows? The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So it's divided, it's distracted, it's opaque. You don't get it. So the path to wholeness, if you really want to live a life that works, is under, over time, bring all of your life under the gracious rule of God. And there are three steps. Thank you for asking. The first step is surrender. The second step is contentment. And I'll tell you what I mean by this. And the third step for living from the inside out and having a new heart is participation. What do I mean? The first step in leading a well-ordered life is surrendering your will to God, is running up the white flag and saying, okay, at the essence, the core of who I am, I've been wanting to call the shots, and that is not working out well for me. I want to give up calling the shots, Lord, and I want you to do that for me. I want to wholeheartedly, voluntarily put myself in this situation where God is in charge. I want God to be uh, calling the shots in my life. And everything else flows from that. You think that's an easy thing to do? I think it's easy to let God call the shots. It's extraordinarily hard. Unbelievably hard. I'll give you two examples of how hard it is. The first thing, the first way it's so hard, we know it's so hard is that when Jesus was talking to a religious leader, a guy called Nicodemus, who was uber-religious and was working really hard to obey God in everything, okay? He was trying his best to, to live for God, and 
and Jesus said to Nicodemus, listen, the problem with your heart is so profound that you can't just patch it up. God needs to actually give you a new heart. The Spirit, that is God, needs to actually totally change your inner being to the point where Jesus used the metaphor of you must be born again. It's such a radical heart change is required because it's so hard. It says only God can change our hearts so that we really want what God wants. That's how hard it is. We need to be born again. The other way, the other metaphor to illustrate this is from Ezekiel 36. Jesus says, uh, God says to the Israelites, he says, your hearts are like stone towards God. But what God promises to do, he says, I'm going to take out your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you the ability to follow me. Say, okay, Lord, I want that. Then it'll be easy, right? They say, be born again. Choose God. Ask him to give you a good heart, a new heart. Then it'll all be sweet and easy. Mm, Yes and no and yes. And maybe a bit of no. Think about Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, that for me, if you want an example of a perfectly ordered life, if you want an example to live for and to hold in your mind to say this is what real life is, Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, for those of you not familiar, it was a garden in Jerusalem. It's just before he's going to die. And he's gone there to pray. And Jesus is praying in the garden. And what is he praying? This is, this is how the story is told. What is, he, what, is he, what is he saying to God? Okay, Jesus, let's assume for a moment, has a new heart. Jesus spent his whole life submitting to the Father. Is it easy for him? At this moment, he's, he's there he's, and he's agonizing. He says he's in such agony talking to God that sweat like blood is dropping down. And he's saying to God, God, I don't want to do your will. <laughs> I don't want to do what you want me to do. Is there any other way possible for me to get through this? Can, I, can you come up with any other plan? And how does the writer end that little picture? How does Jesus, the, the, the writer of the story says, what's, the, what's the, last, the last phrase in that prayer of Jesus? Yet, not my will, but yours. That's it, right? That's the essence of humanity. Not my will, but yours. It's going to cost you blood like, it's sweat like blood. It's going to be excruciating. It's a battle. That is the path. And then what did Jesus do? He thought about how he was going to die. He planned it. His mind directed his body so he could yield his body and the totality of his being to death on a cross. Why? For the love of us. (laughs) That's it. Everything, everything comes from that simple phrase that Jesus said, not my will but yours. That's it, right? (laughs) (laughs) not my will but yours so if you want a new heart that's what you've got to do you've got to surrender you go okay I've got to surrender but then am I stuck in just agony and oh I don't okay I'll do God's will but oh it's awful and I'd rather be doing my own will and I'm miserable because listen it's possible to get stuck there as a Christian as a follower of Jesus because the problem is like we can still choose to live we can choose to live like this 
I can still choose to do what I want to do and ignore God. I can be, and I can spend my life, you might be here tonight going, I've been in church all my life, and I, but I just want to, I just want to, I just want to do my own thing. I want to be free to sleep with who I sleep with and drink what I want to drink and take whatever drugs I want to take and party like I want to party and just I want to live for me. I want to be a bit selfish just for a bit. And yeah, we've all got that choice, right? Always. So we need to get to a point, friends, where we're content with God's will for us. So Paul says, the Bible says, godliness with contentment is much gain. Maybe content. <laughs> like, maybe trust that God's will for you really is better than your will for you. Here's a thought. And, and as, you know, my prayer is that 2018 is a year of, of deep contentment with it for each of us, of submission and surrender to God and contentment. But then the last thing it is, as we do that, like Jesus, we get to participate in God's work to change and heal the world. Isn't that cool? You surrender to his will. You become increasingly content with who you are, what God wants you to do. And then God says, come with me. And together, as you submit to my will, we will change the world. We can find a place where we can be used in the love of others. We can find a place where every bit of our being can be worked with God to change and heal the world. In your workplace, at uni, at school, in the way you use your gifts and your money and your energies and your talents and your creativity. All these things can be used by God in ways that will last forever as your spirit, as your heart is renewed, is surrendered, is content. That, friends, is the way to lead an integrated, flourishing human existence from the very inside out, connected intimately, deeply, immediately with the Spirit of God to renew us, change us. It's very exciting. And you know what? I really do believe this. Um, God's plan is that you and I become like Jesus from the inside out. That the same heart that Jesus has and the same ability to live with surrender and contentment and participation in the Father's plan, that's what he wants for you and for me. And that we can make progress in this. Uh, so one day when you and I face our own Gethsemane, you know, one day you and I may face Moments of agonizing, excruciating choice where our entire lives hang on what we're going to choose to do now. God's plan in those Gethsemane moments for you and for me is like Jesus, we will say, not my will, but yours be done. And we'll do that every day of our lives in the little things. So when time comes to step up to the plate in Gethsemane, we'll step up just as Jesus did what he wants to do with us. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, I pray tonight that you will be at work in our hearts to uh, give us new hearts, hearts of flesh, not hearts of stone. Give us 
the heart of Jesus, to pray with Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. I pray that 2018 for each of us and for all of us collectively will be a year of just wonderful, exciting, and extraordinary inward renewal that in the little things we'll surrender to your will, we'll find contentment, and we'll participate with you in changing the world so that if, so that if and when we face our Gethsemane moments, like Jesus, we'll say, not my will but yours be done. That will just be who we are. This will be our second nature. And we ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus, who lived and died and rose again for each and every one of us. Amen. We're going to sing one last song.